and welcome to Daily Confetti on Unsafe Space with Carter and Carrie. Today's Wednesday, February 12th, and I'm still reporting from my TV room because I have a guest staying with me and it's hard to do the podcast from my writing room when there's a guest here. And somebody in the comments, I want to address this. I mentioned it briefly <laughs> to Carter earlier. Somebody in the comments said that my, I look like I was living in a slum. This is my TV room. <laughs> Get out of your parents' basement, Carrie. By the way, my TV room is super cute. You just can't see it because the camera's pointing this way. This room is cute. It's just this. I can see that the light coming through the curtain makes it look weird, but this is a cute room. And the blankets are here because I have dogs staying with me currently, and the dogs will get the couch dirty, so I put blankets on it. I'm not living in a slum. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever think that this would be your life? Random people on YouTube would be accusing you of living in a slum? <laughs> would be judging me? Yeah, no, I didn't. I want to turn the camera around and show you how cute my room is. <laughs> no, your computer will die. Your your whole setup is so fragile that I don't think you should try that. <laughs> I'm not living in a slum, but my computer's a slum. Yes, it's a ghetto <laughs> computer, if that's an appropriate thing to say. I don't know. Uh, yeah. That's probably problematic. Everything's problematic, um, Carrie. Everything's problematic. See this dog here. See this dog. This is why I have to have blankets on the couch because this little guy. Dogs like this one. You can't really see it. He's not in, actually in frame, but that's okay. There you go. It was okay. Yep. All right. I and I got to hold my own microphone. Look. <laughs> Things <laughs> will get back to normal soon. <sighs> but I'm fine. They also said I, my voice sounded weird. I think it's because the mic was too far away yesterday when I did it from this room. So I'm holding it now. But um, no, I'm not sick. I'm fine. And I'm not in a slum. <laughs> she does have a mic stand also. She just doesn't have it. I don't have it with me. Yeah. Anyway. So. Hello, Carter. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> you know, I'm fine. I'm sitting in a chair with a mic stand and adequate lighting. I, and I feel okay now. You're making me feel pretty good about myself. Good. Can we tell people that you're going to come visit in March and we might get to do Kefefe together in the same room? I am visiting in March. Uh, yeah, I'm visiting in March and we are going to get to do Kefefe in the same room. And uh, I don't know what else. Maybe we should have a civility dinner while we're there. You and I talked about it. Yeah. But yeah. That'll be fun. Do yeah. some kind of dinner. We'll sit on my slum couch. Kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll i'll get a hat with some ears and uh i'll, I'll, to, I'll smell i'll smear some vaseline on my camera so that you can't see me very well either and it'll be like we're together <laughs> no okay. it'll be good uh Maybe. it'll be good carrie and i actually carrie and i have not seen each other physically since we started on safe space i think is that correct true i don't what I don't even remember when we saw each other in person last. It was probably over 10 years ago, right? No, we saw each other briefly when you were out visiting a friend, and we went to dinner oh, right. in Palo Alto. Not Palo Alto, like, uh, I don't know. I feel like it like Burlingame or something like that. Yeah, that was probably like three years ago or so, four years ago, three or four. Yeah, yeah. I, you were, uh, I think you were like maybe starting to question being totally social justice, but you weren't. I don't think you'd written your essay yet. Maybe you had. I don't know. 
I think I had written the essay because that's why we were even talking and hanging oh, out. Oh, yeah. You know what? You're right. Yeah. yeah that's why we were talking. You were, yeah. But I was still at the beginning of my – or, you know, closer to the beginning of my journey for sure. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, um, this article that you shared with me, Carrie, is it, – it, first of all, it was unexpected and uh, I, I liked it a lot more than I – I didn't expect to like it. It was really interesting. Should we share this with people here? Yeah, I didn't expect to like it either based on the title, but I liked it. Yeah. So uh, it's in the Atlantic, which, yes, go ahead. Take it with your grain of salt, uh, preferably black lava sea salt. Um, the nuclear family, that was not a racist thing either. God damn it. I've been so okay. Now I have to explain myself why I'm mentioning black lava sea salt. I've been eating a lot of steak lately, and I I learned that black lava sea salt is so much better than regular salt. You put it on your steak; it's awesome. Have you had black lava? Wait, sea salt? what? I, what about pink Himalayan salt? That's what I. It's use. not is as good? good. Neither is the French um, flower of salt. Whatever the French for the fleur de sel, what? that's not as good. It's good. The black lava is the best. In fact, there's a. My wife and I have a, um, a friend who carries around black lava salt with him. So when he goes to steakhouses, he has it. Bless you. I muted. You didn't have to say that. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I'm not that dedicated to my salt. Okay. <laughs> so here's, uh, here's the article. It is in the Atlantic. It's titled, The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. So when I first saw this, I, w I rolled my eyes, and I was like, oh, sure. Uh, they're going to, I don't know. I expected it to be some kind of single moms are the best. We should all be polyamorous or what, like some kind of nuclear families are the patriarchy. Is that what you expected, Gary? Well, based on the title, but then I saw that David Brooks had written it, and I thought that would be surprising if he were at something like that. So then I was very curious to see what he had to say. Yeah, I don't I don't know David Brooks, so I I even after the title or even after the byline, I was like, oh this what's this gonna be? But uh this was a fascinating article and I can't believe I'm gonna recommend reading the Atlantic, but I would go read this article. What's wrong with the Atlantic? I like the Atlantic. That's where they published the first essay that led to uh the coddling of the American mind, Jonathan Haidt. I guess it's anyway. Um, go ahead. No, I guess the Atlantic is more. Uh, it's more a heterodox than some of the like exclusively. It's not. It's not like the New Yorker, right? Um, right. They have a little bit it's more better. breadth. What? Yeah, it's better than the New Yorker. Yeah. Um, anyway. So, I, I maybe we should just kind of describe this article because it's super long. So we're not going to walk through this article, but. The, the gist of it is, if I can summarize, then, Carrie, you can maybe jump in and correct me when I'm not getting this right um, or if I'm missing something or, you know, whatever. Um, the gist of it is humans um, evolved in sort of like, a, I forget the word he used, but it's almost like a clan-like thing. Kin, there's a lot of kinship that was not even necessarily familial. So um, if they uncover uh, graves of people who were buried together, uh, like ancient graves of people who were buried together, they find that there wasn't as much uh, shared DNA as they would have expected from just like a regular extended family type of thing. So, um, and there was this idea even more recently about like a, almost, I think he called it corporate families, so like a family 
um, organized around the business. So if there was a farm, which obviously was one of the most common forms, um, they would be not just an extended family, but like hired uh, hands or, or people that kind of worked on the farm in various ways. And they would all kind of be part of this giant collective of people. Um, and, and, the, an, and when we think of extended family, sometimes we think of just like grandparents, but it's really like you're living there together with cousins and aunts yeah. and everyone. Yeah. And there was some value to that, right? Because there's um, that kind of a family offers a decent amount of stability uh, because if someone goes through a crisis or if there's a falling out between two people or if there's, uh, you know, someone loses a job or gets hurt or whatever uh, or needs extra attention or help, whatever it is, there's other people there to buttress um, uh, that family and keep people together and keep it functioning. And, and it's really good for kids. It's a great environment for kids. Um, so let's like, you know, uh, also another point that he made in the articles, you know, if a, if a marriage falls apart for some reason, like the, um, they fall out of love or they're struggling, it's much more difficult to like separate and get divorced because they're all part of this kind of unit together. So there's more of a, um, support structure to work work it out. They also have people they can talk to who are they're intimate with, who they're there every day, like they've, you know, parents, uncles and whatever. So they they can have discussions about their problems, kind of a think of it as a an old version of therapy and like a support structure around you. Um, and not, I, to me, that all made a lot of sense about why that evolved. I don't know about you, Carrie, but that made a lot of sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, and, and, well, to move on, he, uh, I'm going to pick up this part and you tell me if I get it wrong. Yep. So what he's saying about how the nuclear family, what was the title again? Uh, the title is the nuclear family was a mistake. Okay. So he gets to this point about how for most of human history, we didn't live in this one little unit of a couple and their kids, right? You lived with, like Carter saying, this it, this extended family, or you lived with, um, in a tribe with people who had uh, common interests with you, and it like a community. Mm -hmm. And the nuclear family really was kind of a short period of history. The nuclear family being just the mom and the dad and the kids, and that when you and the way that it, phrasing it that way made me realize, you know, he's. Actually, that's kind of true. You don't have the stability and the support that comes from having um, other kin living with you, like whether it's other, you know, other uh, multi generational, um, other, you know, extended family members, or uh, living in the type of close knit community or tribe where you've got people to help you and to share the duties and share the support. And so he sort of said, you know, the reason why the nuclear family did so well at that particular time time in history um, was because, well, it necessitated a few things. One, that one parent stayed home and another parent went out and worked. And that happened to be, on average, it was the mom, who's the yeah, woman and, and who stayed home. And just to be clear, he, his argument was that it was a very short period of time in history where it actually worked. I think he said from like 1950 to 1965, it was a very short window in his argument. I mean, you can make an argument it was broader, but for, for he was saying this extended family thing lasted actually quite a while. And the, the nuclear family ideal was very, very short and recent. Right? Yeah. And that the extended family kind of, um, the, the, you know, petered out with, well, one of the things he was saying, again, this is a really long piece, 
but he was talking about in the 60s and 70s that there were some things that were happening in the workforce. So you had women entering the workforce. So then I don't know if he made this point, but you've made this point before. If you're doubling the workforce, wages drop. He did mention that men's wages dropped. Used yep. to be that you could have this nuclear family, the man, one person making the living and the other one working from home. And now you almost need, in a lot of cases, two incomes because the wages have dropped. Um, and so uh, so that was happening. But he was also saying there was a lot of cultural stuff happening in the 60s and 70s where we went from being about – like they, there was a study of women's magazines. And in the 50s, like a lot of the women's magazines were all about self-sacrifice for the greater good and self-sacrifice for your family and for your children. And then the themes of the magazines in the 60s and 70s, it became all about the individual. It mm-hmm. became all about like – um, you know, instead of self-sacrifice, it became all about the self, like, um, you know, ma- making the self happy and empowerment. Self-actualization. Yeah. Self-actualization, self-realization, all of that stuff mm-hmm. and how that became really important. And also that the function of marriage itself kind of changed the, I- the cultural attitudes of what marriage is about started to change where we used to look at marriage as sort of being primarily about, um, raising children and creating a stable home life for children. And then it became about fulfilling ideas of self-fulfillment and romantic love. It became more about like romantic love. And so um, one of the things that led to families sort of over the higher divorce rate was probably that if you're marrying just for romantic love and then the romantic love or the limerence fades, it makes more sense of, you know, why not get a divorce if that's the only reason you married anyway? Yeah. Uh, He also, though, talked about so one of his points was like the difference between um, uh, income levels where uh, wealthier people, when they run into those problems, let's say there are a couple that married for love and it's a nuclear family. um, If they're wealthy enough, they can afford a support structure that poor families can't afford. So they can afford to everything from taking vacations without the kids because they can afford childcare to going to therapy to um, you know, having uh, assistance with uh, house cleaning or whatever it is. So they can afford to um, replicate some of the, not just some of the labor support, but even some of the emotional support that would have happened with an extended family. They can afford to kind of yeah. replicate that, which is why he was arguing that um, wealthier couples tend to stay together because uh, they can, when there's a rough patch, uh, they have the resources maybe to smooth that out or to kind of um, uh, find support in other ways that if you're, you have less resources or fewer resources, you're not able to do that as much. And so um, I think that was his argument. Is that, is that how you read it, Carrie? Yeah, that, yeah, that uh, wealthy people can basically buy extended family in the form of uh, domestic labor and uh, emotional and psychological help. Right. Where so instead of talking to, you know, in the past, maybe you would have had a conversation with grandma or Aunt Maud about your marriage problems. Well, if you're wealthy, you just pay someone, you know, $200 an hour to go talk to a therapist about your marriage problems. But if you don't have that $200 an hour to pay or whatever it is, um, then you don't get that emotional support. Um, Basically, I just uh, use Carter as my Aunt Maud, and this entire podcast is a facade for me to get my, the emotional help I need. <laughs> Hold on, I'm just, uh, I have to add this to our your therapy bill. <laughs> You're part of my extended family in that way. <laughs> I know. So, so he goes on to say, he goes on to say that um, 
he, he makes a couple points. One is that uh, a lot of the immigrants coming in um, aren't, he doesn't say this as explicitly as I'd like, but I'll, I'll say it explicitly. And I had a conversation with my wife about this this morning because um, she didn't grow up in the U.S., a lot of the other cultures still have a lot more extended family. Um, no, the extended family is, a, is much more the norm. And so um, they're bringing some kind of the extended family uh, ideas into the, like back into the U.S. in some way, um, which I think is actually healthy. Um, but yeah, he said uh, when he asked, when you asked, uh, or I forget, somebody asked African immigrants what was the most stark difference when moving to the U.S., when migrating to the U.S., and they said the loneliness. Yeah, that was a point he had in the article. Yeah, the the loneliness was a big a big difference. Um, and I don't know. I so and, and then he makes and then later in the article, I, I guess he makes an argument for. Um, I don't know that he has a particular solution in mind. Although he says some things that I I don't agree with, like he thinks the government should help. Um, and I, I can get into why I think that's a bad idea in a minute. But um, but he does posit an interesting uh question here which i it's actually something that i've been thinking about which is why i really like this article which is like what do we replace some of that kinship and and clansmanship with like like there are people who i'm an example like we don't my wife's family is in another country um my extended like i for personal reasons falling out like i don't really have an extended family in the u.s um, I mean, they're here, but I don't really have a relationship with them. Um, and so we're kind of on our own. And what we have started to do intuitively and not really done as much, you know, not really done as consciously as would like to. Um, but what we had started to do intuitively is we, we've built like a, what I would call an old school, like the, the kinships of, of, you know, the ancient times where it's, they're not necessarily people that are blood related to us, but um, they're kind of part of a community. And we've even toyed with the idea, we haven't done this, but we've explicitly talked about this with some of our friends, like, oh, maybe we should buy houses together and like be in the same community together. And I know you've talked about that as well um, in your church. Yeah, that's something that I thought was really fascinating interesting that I, I found out that people, um, the church, one of the churches that I go to, the, the, the one that I went to for, for the most often this past year, um, they, that they do that. They buy, they kind of seed a neighborhood together so that there'll be like maybe three or four families, I guess. I'm not sure, but three or four, and they buy houses close together in the same little neighborhood suburb or whatever. And then they have kid, you know, their kids have someone to play with. They have, because they also do their own school, they run their school. It's a, it's part homeschool, part, um, Christian classical school. And, um, so I think they, I think they do home lessons two days a week and the other days they go to school. But, um, but that way they're, they're creating this community of people who have shared values and share belief system who live near them. And it's a support system and they help each other help each other to move it to these neighborhoods, you know, to do. And I thought that was really kind of amazing taking control of it. I had just never considered it before, but why not taking control of who, who your wider community is of who your kin are, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's, there is this concept of chosen family, which I've been into for a while, but, um, 
it's not, it's counterintuitive to have to build your own community. Um, and I don't think it's something that people think about a lot because, you know, historically we are just born into a community and that's your community. Um, so you didn't have to be like, oh, we need to build a community. But I, there is something that's really, I find it really appealing. Uh, and he, he also talked about how it, the, the family is continuing to fracture. And I liked, I liked this observation he made where, um, he he was talked about a movie. I guess there was some movie. Um, what's the name of it? Avalon, a 1990 film called Avalon. And I guess I have not seen this movie, but it sounds like the movie kind of tracks the. Uh, I'll call it the dis- disintegration uh, or fracturing of a family uh, over the years. Where at the beginning they're having a very robust Thanksgiving dinner with all the family members and extended family there, and sort of towards the end it's. The family's kind of sitting on the couch. It's, it's just, just a nuclear family sitting on a couch eating Thanksgiving dinner, watching television. And he makes the point that it, the fracturing doesn't even stop there. With Now with, with like mobile devices and stuff, um, they're not even, the family's not even watching the same screen half the time. So it's like fracturing at an even, even um, more individual level. And so uh, it, he also, you know, he did say some things that I, I disagreed with predominantly with his arguments for like government needs to step in and do stuff. Um, and he also cited that the black family has suffered um, disproportionately, which is correct. Um, one thing I don't like is he tried to tie the black family's suffering to slavery, which um, I understand the inclination to do that. But if you actually look at the fracturing of the black family, um, the black family was much stronger uh after slavery, even um, than they are now, it doesn't it doesn't correlate to slavery. It correlates more to the rise of the welfare state and the fracturing of the family um, in the black community in particular. Uh, the family was historically extremely strong, even through slavery. Um, the the black community um, exhibited really really strong ability to keep family ties, even in the worst of circumstances. Um, and it was really the welfare state, from my understanding, that if you if you really look at the the trends, it's really it was the welfare state that really started to make inroads into fracturing the black families more than um, the historic legacy of slavery, as, as bad as slavery was, obviously. Um, Carrie, what did you think about? Um, so this made me think about a couple things. One was he talked about uh, the the. He framed this in terms of like individualism versus, and I don't think he really defined the not individualist thing. Maybe community is would be. A, he that, did use the word collectivist at one point, more of a collectivist way of living. Yeah, uh, he. So he was arguing that there's been this push as there's been wealth and as industrialization came along. There's been this. Uh, he talked about people wanting to go be more more alone and more private they wanted more privacy and more isolation um mm-hmm. and i was thinking about that and i want to run something by you because i was thinking about why that is and uh i have an analogy humans most people i don't know what how do you feel about sugar do you like like sugar uh i mean it's okay but i don't use i'm not a person who uses like i don't put it in my coffee i don't use a lot of it if it if there was no health consequences, would you just eat sugar or no? You just don't I don't like it. like it in my coffee. Okay. No. 
So a lot of people, so you're not, you're, you're an outlier, or at least you're not me. A lot of people, and this is evidence through diabetes, um, a lot of people really crave sugar. I totally crave sugar. I could eat sugar all day long. Um, and no, I crave salt. You have to understand there are savory people and there are sweet people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get that. Okay, go ahead. I get, I, I get that. So I'm going to, I'm going to use the sugar analogy though, cause it's the one that, that works for me. Um, that I relate to better. Um, and I think it's very common, right? So, um, we didn't evolve, uh, with access to sugar, really not much at all. Like even the fruits that were available, um, were not as sugary as the fruits that we have now. We've, um, uh, we've bred sugary and bigger fruits than, than existed in nature. So we evolved, um, not having a lot of access to sugar. So if you've got a, and I want sugar mechanism, like a, a desire for sugar. There's no real evolutionary pressure to have that desire mitigated in any way because it was mitigated by the fact that you couldn't overdo it. On You weren't going to get diabetes 2,000 years ago. Like it wasn't, or, or 10,000, even prior to agriculture. You weren't going to get diabetes. You had to run around and kill buffalo with a spear or whatever you were doing. Like there wasn't you're predominantly eating meat, which is the, you know, our brains developed because of the caloric dense, calorically dense access we had to, uh, the access we had to calorically dense foods like meat, um, we, you know, our brains couldn't have developed on, uh, you know, less Skittles. dense, right. Uh, impossible burgers. Um, but, uh, but you know, if you're, if you're out hunting, if you grab a piece of fruit or some berries, that gives you a quick energy rush. There's a, an advantage to like, you get a quick energy rush and maybe that helps you, you know, get your prey or whatever it is. So uh, there's no downsides to craving sugar in that environment. Um, there's basically only upside. And so there's no real mechanism that needs to be developed psychologically or, or even um, biologically to, to not want sugar. But here we are in 2020 and sugar's in everything. I mean, go to the supermarket, anything that's packaged, almost everything has sugar listed as like the second or third ingredient. Sugar is everywhere. Um, in addition to that, there's obviously carbohydrates that metabolize into sugar everywhere after the invention of agriculture. Like, so just carbs are everywhere. Like, um, and so we we now have a society of people with no real- That's how I, that's how I prefer to get my sugar, by the way. Carbs. carbs. Love carbs. <laughs> right. Yeah, I love carbs too, right? So we have a society full of people who will just stuff their faces with carbs and sugary drinks literally into oblivion. They'll get to be ob- like morbidly obese. They'll get diabetes. They'll die of heart failure all because they are just craving sugar and carbs. Um, and that's that mechanism, there's no there was no self-regulation of that mechanism. And so it takes extra work to self-regulate. Like for someone like me, I could eat, I could eat sugar and carbs all day long, literally all the time. Like that's, I, I could probably just drink Coke and eat pizza all the time. Um, I would be, if you watch old shows, I'm actually fatter than I am now, but <laughs> like I would be huge if that's all I did. Um, because I don't have any like internal control mechanism for not want, not craving those things. And I'm, I'm thinking about this. The reason I'm bringing this up is I think the metaphor I'm drawing is to the desire for isolation and privacy. So creativity, deep thought, um, emotional processing, all these things require privacy and isolation. 
I, I'm someone, for example, who likes to go off by myself, think deeply about things. Um, I, I am when I'm creative, I want to be like in, in flow. I don't want to be disturbed. Like I, I, I want my privacy and isolation. And I was thinking about this. You could have that desire and that desire actually could be beneficial historically, because maybe that's where you, you go off and you think about something and you're like the wheel, I came up with the wheel, whatever it is. Right. Um, <laughs> that's how it worked. Carrie, totally. There was a guy I with the wheel. Um, so, you, but you need that kind of private, deep thought, um, isolated time. Uh, and also, I just, like I said, for just for emotional and, and psychological processing. However, you didn't really, there was no necessity to, to develop um, that only in moderation. There was no, there was no pressure to evolve any mechanism that would uh, uh, counter that because you literally could not survive on your own. I mean, even if you were like the Rambo of 20,000 years ago, the Rambo of the Neanderthals or whatever, you still wouldn't pass on your genes to anyone, even if you survive <laughs> in nature, right? So like you couldn't, you couldn't be alone all the time. You had to go back to your community. There was no, I can just go have a house on a hill and be a hermit and order stuff from Amazon. That couldn't happen. But now it can. And I'm wondering if what's happened is we've taken this desire, and I have the desire for privacy and isolation. Absolutely. I probably more than most people I know. But I've wondered if we're like starting to take it to an extreme in a, in a way that we don't recognize that it's unhealthy for us and for our kids and our family because... Um, it's, it's, it's like sugar where I feeding into this. I don't want to be left alone. I don't want the annoyance of grandma around, or I don't want, you know, uncle Bob smells and I don't want him in the house very often or, you know, whatever it is. Um, but you're missing out on stuff that you just don't recognize is important. Does that make sense? I zoned out during part of it. You were t when, cause the sugar talk went on for, <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. But I think at the end you brought it back around. All the sugar talk was an analogy for not being evolved, <laughs> not having evolved to have a shutoff mechanism for aloneness. Is that it? I'm saying, yeah, I'm saying that the psychological <laughs> desire for aloneness and privacy makes sense to me and is useful, but we didn't have to develop uh, uh, any way to curtail that naturally because it couldn't be curtailed. And that's the analogy to, to sugar. Uh, okay, got it. Okay, I like that analogy. Thank you for making it succinctly. <laughs> I can't do anything succinctly. I started thinking about salt, and then I started thinking about pretzels. <laughs> and I was like, okay. No, I think that's a good analogy. Yeah. <clears throat> I think... What, what do you think about... Uh, let me throw another question out to you, because I was thinking about this. Do you think that maybe because we've had a decrease in the support structure of an extended family, do you think that is one of the reasons people are turning to the government more and more for their support structure? Because there's like this existential, there's this thing missing? Um, Maybe I don't know if it's an, if it's necessarily an existential thing missing. I think people just pr practically and pragmatically feel like, how can I do all this myself, and how can I afford all this myself, and I need someone to help me. It better be the government, because because I'm certainly not going to ask my 
mom to move in with me. You know, that's that's how I think people think these days. I'm not going to ask, you know, my great aunt or whoever. Like they don't have the, the the. I think it's just that practically, like he talks about mothers today, if they're working class moms, they have the responsibility of the childcare, the domestic care. I mean. Yes, things are more egalitarian than they used to be, and men pull more of the the weight around the house as well now too, and with childcare as well. Um, but in general, it's like you know you used to have women used to have other people in the home that helped. You had aunts and you had grandmothers and you had other people around and close by and in that community to help out. And he talked about you know even being even with discipline, you would let other adults discipline. You trusted other adults to discipline your kids within your community and now it's people feel like it's just them i think people get to feeling overwhelmed and like i need i need well it is just them and they're not wrong right yeah Um, yeah yeah and he even talked about even even when we got to the point where it was nuclear families and not extended families it was nuclear families kind of what we're talking about like in a neighborhood where the neighbors would kind of waltz in and say hello and you would all kind of watch each other's kids and there was still a community feel to it which has um completely disappeared and people would hang out on each other's porches and i mean that's just, i don't know, i'm sure it's elsewhere too but growing up in the south that was a real southern thing and that's something we did even when i was a kid there was still some of that some of that happening not as much but um you know i was lucky in that we lived in a small town and like I lived uh, like a mile or two from my grandparents, not next door. You definitely, most of the time we drove there, we didn't, but, but, um, a couple, it was more than one mile. Now I'm thinking about distance. (laughs) Okay. But it was pretty close. And, um, and so, you know, they did a lot of, they, they did a lot of childcare. Like we stayed with my grandparents after school, like they would pick us up from school. I was lucky in that, you know, we didn't go to, latch key or anything like that we stayed we had grandparents nearby who could help take care of us because both parents were working and um and a lot of people i know at my age didn't didn't have that they, they didn't have the extended family nearby and we also did we were still doing stuff that kind of was almost as if it was try. we were trying to bring back the maybe the 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 extended family of the previous generations because we would have when I was young we would have these big family get togethers extended family get togethers where you'd go to one great uncle's farm or something and everybody would come and it would just be like a hoedown right. on the porch and big just big cardboard tables spread out with plastic you know uh, tablecloths and just tons of potato salad and deviled eggs and whatever and how ever- <laughs> often would you do that um a few times a year we would have uh, like a the reunion for each family. It would be like like the last name of my grandfather, like that family reunion, and then one of my grandmas, and then. But people would come from both sides anyway, so you'd see some of the same people. And then sometimes we would do it for whenever there was a big birthday and one of the extended. And and because they they had more siblings back then, you had more great aunts and great uncles, and so you you were celebrating more holidays. Think of that, you know. If you just get together for birthdays and now there's so few siblings, you're oh, not getting together as often as you used to. And you had 13 birthdays a year to celebrate versus one. That's a really good point. <laughs> it's a comp- there's a compounding effect to having fewer kids, which is like 
there you lose all that interaction that you wouldn't have normally. Yeah. 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 And so and it, it, it wasn't the same as when my grandparents grew up because they actually did live very close knit with extended family, but it was sort of, it was almost maybe they were trying to recreate that a little bit with us getting together a lot like that. And then it tapered off by the time I was a young adult, we were hardly doing that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I think with the, I think with the collectivist thing, I think living in a family like that, I think feels collectivist to people in some way, in like in positive ways, right? And, and so obviously I'm not a collectivist. Uh, it feels it feels like a positive experience, and I think they, I really think they are translating that into their vision when they think of like how a collectivist or a socialist state would work. They, they, um, they're. They're projecting those family vibes somehow into like this is how we would all get along and work collectively together, just like a family. Um, I think there's a huge difference though that needs to be pointed out. The reason that families work that way is um, it's a symbiotic relationship in a family. So there's not like a tit for tat accounting system. It's not like you did the dishes and therefore I'll do the blah blah blah. blah. Like it's not that. That would be dysfunctional. Um, but there is this general level of like track, like a, on a meta level, like goodwill is tracked. So like if someone is, if there's like a problem member of the family, people rally around to try and pull that person back into the fold and help them to be a contributing member of the family again. And there, there is kind of this, um, very soft policing of behavior in a family so that you don't get people who are continually disruptive or leeches and they that doesn't actually translate to a large scale it doesn't translate to the government the government it's not a symbiotic relationship um you're like when the government's giving you resources as a replacement for the structure that you had in your extended family it's it's no longer symbiotic it's a that's just a parasitic relationship um and because there's no there's no way that that community can be um, effectively quote policed in the same way. You can't you can't build that sense of community with checks from the government and resources from the government. You need a close knit group of people who are who are in relationship with one another and know each other well and know what's going on with each one, each other and can say like oh I think Carrie's having a problem with whatever it is like let's figure out how to support her. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I think the church uh, is a natural place to create this kind of community because there are like, for example, the what I, what we talked about earlier, the my friends who or the, the church who where they will kind of move into a neighborhood with other people from the church. And, and then you have this you're establishing this natural connection with people that you already know and who, you know, you share values with. And you have this natural community that you're sort of planting there. Um, there's that, but then there's also a church provides a lot of opportunity for these multi generational family picnic type of things. Yeah, you're As getting it, together. There's lots yeah. of people from different age groups, and everybody's cooking their potato salad and bringing it. You're there's the natural. Op- and in fact, when I quit going to church because I was raised Southern Baptist, and then I walked away from 
the church and from God for a long time. And when I quit going, one of the things I kept saying that I missed was that sense of, it was a natural sense of community of being around um, larger, a larger group of people, like a body of people that you chose to, you know, that you were part of this bigger family, um, so to speak. And so I think it, I think it provides that. And plus that when the churches that do it right, they also, like you're talking about, they will, gather around and try to help people who are part of the church when they need it and the way that an extended family would. So. But they also hold them accountable in the way an extended family would and responsible. Yes. They don't just, it's not just uh, fill out this form and get the help. Yeah. I, as an atheist, uh, that's something that I've missed for a while is like the community of the, the potential for community of a church. Um, because I do, I do think that's something that's super valuable, and I'm I'm dumb enough to be an atheist and an anarchist. So the the Venn diagram of people who are atheists, anarchists, and want some kind of community, like there's no overlap. I think, and those are those people don't want to talk to each other. <laughs> it's like you should form an atheist anarchist uh, alliance. Right? Yeah. There's just no. They they all. <laughs> It's, oh it's the God, weirdest thing because like, oh, if you're also those things where we have shared values, that probably means we don't want to hang out at all. Well, this is what you can see people. His article is kind of like at the end, he sort of talks about, you know, chosen family and this idea of creating. It's going to be interesting going forward to see how people create if they do create this this these sort of extended families again or these communities again. And that support the nuclear family unit. That's kind of what I was taking from it. Um, That's my and, hope. I totally hope that happens. Yeah. Yeah. And so, well, I think you see that happening in some ways in uh, where people congregate around shared interests. So it may not be around shared values, but around shared interests. So for example, the knitting community, you know, we've met a lot of people in, who like knitting and who found each other through the love of this craft. And, um, you know, I, I got really, one part of, one cool part of my old career was um, getting to produce certain types of um, content. And uh, there was one thing I worked on once with this comedian I adore, and it was, it was basically gonna be a series. We got to do two episodes and then we didn't have the funding to continue, but we basically were gonna be, um, investigating people's obsessions or the things that people basically like there's common interests. And so we got to do an episode where we went and talked to LARPers. We went to weird con. <laughs> That's awesome. I wanted, I would totally would do it. That. I'll share the video. It was so much fun. And, <laughs> and, and the funny thing is it's not just, you think of LARPers as one big community, but no, there's all these subgroups in there that the different kinds of LARP and some people, they have nothing in common with other kinds of LARPers, you know? Like there's the LARPers who do the sword play and fight, have physical yeah. battles. And then there's the LARPers who sit around and speak like they're in Victorian era and they make do like needlepoint. Wow. <laughs> and, then, like, and then there's like the sci-fi LARPers and there's just all these different. And that was and these and, and it's a community. People like get together. They know one another. They so I, I kind of think now we tend to do that. We tend to I mean, I was a while and I was like super into Doctor Who nerd. Um Right. But like there, there's like a Doctor Who community, you know what I mean? Like, if, yeah, and I know it's it sounds kind of trivial because that's a we're in a consumer culture. And so, yeah, I guess it makes sense that communities would be evolving over what types of media and entertainment we like to consume. The but word you're looking for is happening. 
frivolity. Frivolity. <laughs> we are we are forming communities around shared frivolity. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, no, but I I think hey, that makes forming. sense. I don't think it's ultimately as fulfilling, obviously, as forming communities around shared values, especially when kids come into play. Shared values are extremely important. Um, but we don't think as a society always... in terms of values. So. Yeah, shared values are always going to trump shared frivolities. I think. Because, they should. But but they should. But I think also people make may, hopefully make real friendships in some of these communities and then they find they have shared values. I don't know. Um, we're, I would think now that we're talking about it, we're creating hopefully some kind of community of sorts, um, of, of people who have, I would say, I would say people that, that watch our show probably have some shared values. I mean, we all have different opinions and everything, but that we value, like you put it in the mission statement. We value freedom of speech and right. Yeah. No, I, I think that's true. And, and, um, yeah, who knows? I'm always, I'm always hesitant to like, I don't know. It's weird because I like the community of the church, but, um, I'm really nervous about trying to do anything like that in secular circles because I'm worried that it would be like a cult. So I just don't, I'm just kind of doing my thing. And, uh, I guess we're randomly meeting people that we have shared values and if we can hang out, we can hang out. Great. Um, hey, but, look, we know, we know we've done the cult checklist before. I'm pretty sure we don't check off. <laughs> it's a big fear of mine. Honestly, it's a big fear of mine, though. Um, so, it's a big fear of yeah, you becoming an accidental. That'd be a hilarious movie if somebody becomes an accidental cult leader. <laughs> I wasn't Life of Brian about that. Kind of. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, I need to watch that movie again. It's been a while. Yeah. Anyway. Um, um, but yeah, like I, I am, we have been, we've started to be more, um, and look, I think this is 20 years too late for me, uh, or more, not too late, but like 20 years later than it should have been. Um, but we've started to like consciously and actively think about like, okay, um, when we move next, like, can we, can we make it part of a movement with other people where there's a community like we're we're moving intentionally. Like my best friend doesn't live in California; she lives in Colorado. And um, you know, we we were strongly considering like, okay, what if we bought the house next to her? I mean, she's been she helps encourage that. But like that kind of stuff is it's you know I don't know what we're going to do, but that kind of stuff is is important to think about because um, man, when you are on a nuclear family all alone, it's tough. It is tough to just be a nuclear family and to not have the support structure and to be able to have, I would love to be able to have kids play on the front yard and know that the neighbors around me were of similar enough shared values that they were gonna um, look out for the kids and discipline them in a way that is resonates with me and that they could have dinner at each other's houses and I wouldn't have to worry about creepiness or weirdness. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Well, this has been a good one. I think we should wrap it up. I agree. Mostly because this little dog baby needs to go outside. He's shaking. Yeah, he's um, not allowed in my shared community, just to be clear. <laughs> All, no dog no. with diapers is allowed in my shared community. <laughs> <laughs> he's a diaper dog. That's true. Um, okay. 
Anyway, thank you guys for tuning in to Daily Cafefe. <laughs> if it's your first time watching Unsafe Space, we really appreciate it. You can visit us online at unsafespace.com. We have a merchandise store there where you can get some really cool, fun hats and t-shirts and maybe more in the future. And we also have a subscribe star if you want to support the show. Um, you can go and donate any amount, like a tip, a one-time tip, or you can do a monthly amount of whatever you choose and be in our little unperson club. And... Uh, and then we're going to be doing book club. We were going to pick a date soon, but there's a book club page on our website and there's a link to the, the next book that we're going to be reading, which is the madness of crowds by Douglas Murray. Um, and then we're also planning a retreat for the fall. So it's going to be here in Texas. Um, we're trying to pick the dates now. So if you want to vote, if you want to say and what weekends work best for you, go over to the Facebook uh, page or Facebook group unsafe space on Facebook and you'll find, you'll find a poll to vote in. And, uh, Thank you. Thank you guys for joining. Thank you, Carter. Thanks. Have a good day.